Well, I'm really glad to be here. Um, I really got a, a big sweat going this morning. So Van, Pastor Van gave me full permission to take off my jacket here and to loosen my tie a little bit. Um, I usually, uh, I, I, know, I know, I'm taking some liberties here. Uh, for me personally, I, I usually wear my suits at funerals and um, at uh, weddings. So uh, this is a special occasion. It's neither, but I'm glad I could be here. Uh, these things choke me, man. I don't know why people that like ties put them on, but that's okay. That's okay. That's Pastor's Van style, and I'm willing to adapt today. I am super excited to be here. Um, I send greetings to you from the brothers and sisters all the way over in that great, soon-to-be conservative state, Ohio. Um, <clears throat> We'll, we'll, we'll see what happens, uh, but we send greetings to you. We feel like we're kindred spirit because of our involvement with some of the, the, the Bible churches in this area. For Independent Bible Church, they have served us at Maranatha because they have given us an incredible gift in Erica Johnson, who married our college pastor, and she is an incredibly talented young lady, and we're, we're, we feel very appreciative to have her. Also, sometime back, Pastor Mark brought his staff over to Maranatha in Akron, and we fellowshiped together, found out you were going to be planning a church called Centerpoint, and met Lowell, and I'm like, hey, let us come alongside of you. We want to help financially, we want to help in prayer support, and so we were able to begin that journey and up, uh, undergird the, the ministry through prayer. And now, finally, we get to, to minister with the first child of Independence uh, Bible Church uh, Fellowship. And we get to do that because Mark and Cheris get to come and to be here. And finally, we get rid of them. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Actually, it's been a great privilege to have Mark and Cheris with us. I will tell you that Cheris is the more intelligent of the two. Okay. She's a little bit better looking. Mark's a little ugly, but it's okay. It, it, you will learn to love them just as we have learned to love them. In all seriousness, Mark has come alongside and really helped me develop a culture of outreach at the church. Because as a church, we have to be on mission with God. We are outside the will of God if we just focus internally. Now, discipleship is important. Worship is important. But... If we just do those things and we forget about the community, we forget the commission. The command of God is to go into the world. And Mark has really been able to help us in that way and create a culture of outreach. And I hope that he'll be able to come alongside of you and continue to help create that for you. I, feel appreciate, I, I appreciate the fact that we were able to be here last night to hear about the history to see how, you know, uh, Woody and Jim and the, the Bible study that took place in their home and to see it start in an old stone church and, and the progress has been incredible to see God's faithfulness every step of the way, right? For 20 years, there's no doubt about it. God has been faithful, right? Amen. Amen. But you know what? I believe as you look forward, and as I have the privilege to give a charge both to Mark, I was looking forward to preaching a message just to Mark, but I think we'll do it for everybody, including myself. Uh, you know, God is faithful. 
And not only is he going to be faithful in the has he been faithful in the past, but he's going to be faithful in the future. See, this is what I know of God. He's always faithful. The variable in all of this, which can be a little unfaithful and sometimes much unfaithful, is the flesh and blood that are still here on earth. You see, as we look at history, and this is what I want to be on the guard, as we look forward to the next 20, 30, 40 years for fellowship, I want us to consider our hearts and our lives Because historically speaking, there are people that were in love with Jesus that got off track and God removed his blessing from them. Can you think of times in scripture when that's happened? Sure. How about the people of Israel? There's a lot of times that they messed up. But when they went into the promised land, you remember under Joshua's leadership, man, they had some mighty victories and they were serving God and they were doing what God said. For the most part, they had a few times where God had to bring some discipline, but they were serving him. They weren't going to the left or to the right. They were doing what God said. And when they, when Joshua said in Joshua 24, he says, now listen, choose you this day who you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. They were there. They, that generation of believers were saying, yeah, I'm with you, Joshua. We want to serve the one and only true God. And then we get to Judges. Just a few chapters later, listen to this verse. This is Judges chapter 2, verse 10. It says this. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done. You know what, my friends? If we're not careful, that can happen to us. Let's not put our heads in the sand and say, oh, no, no, that's other churches. That can never be us. No, it can happen to us if we are not careful. Now, listen, you're under blessing right now. God has blessed this ministry. It is so evident. And I believe at Maranatha Bible Church in Akron, Ohio, that we are living under that blessing. And God's lampstand is right there in the midst. But you know what? There's a lot of churches today in the world where that lampstand has been removed because they got off the path. And so today's charge is to get us back or to make sure that we stay on that path and that we stay focused on what we need. Because here's the condition of the church in America. Many churches who once were blessed are now living in decline. I recently read this article that caused me to sober up a little bit. It was from the Missional Church Network. That, that they, it's a kind of a think tank where they bring in a lot of the people that have a pulse on, on the churches in the United States. And here were the seven conclusions they came on the objective uh, data that they gathered. They gathered this. They said, less than 20, this is their conclusions, less than 20% of Americans regularly attend church. I don't think that surprises too many of us. It says, Amer- second, the American church attendance is steadily declining. 94% of churches are losing ground in the communities that they serve. In other words, there are churches that are in communities and the communities don't even know that they're there. 
I often wonder what the effectiveness of a church that is like that. My friends, if, if, if God was to remove Fellowship Bible Church from this community, would they know? See, this is what they're saying in the statistics, that there's a lot of churches that are in communities, their communities, they have no impact on them whatsoever. It says in one, only one state has outpaced the population of growth. In the, in the United States, of all the states. It says mid-sized churches are shrinking. The established church that's been around for 40 to 190 years, they're declining. An, another c- conclusion that they came up with is that the increase in churches is only one-fourth of what's needed to keep up with population. Here's what they're saying. 3,000 churches a year die. That's a natural attrition rate that happens in in the United States. And in order to keep up with the growth, we would need 10,000 new churches every year in the United States just to stay up with the growth. And that is not happening because churches aren't focused on planting churches. They're not focused on seeing the gospel spread where it's not there. And the last statistic is that by 2050, the percentage of the U.S. population attending churches will be almost half of what it was in 1990. So you ask, well, how in the world could this happen? I mean, how could God's blessing and his lampstand be be so prevalent in a ministry and all of a sudden God remove it? It happens because we lose our way. And so this morning, the question I want us to ask, because we can't deal with every church in the United States, we can certainly pray for the body of Christ, but here's what we can do. We can bring it down to individual responsibility and ask ourselves, what kind of church are we going to be? What kind of church will we be in the future? And so today, I want us to be encouraged from God's word, and I want to give five charges of what we should be as a church. Now I want you to turn in your Bibles to Revelations 2. Revelations 2. And this is where we're going to be getting our charges. Now in this book, in the first few verses, we're going to get four very, very positive charges that God gives this church. See, Paul, or the, uh, the Lord is writing to the Ephesian church in Revelations chapter 2. Now you got to know something. The Ephesian church was started about 40 years previous to this, and that's when the book of Ephesians was written and Paul wrote, penned those words. But now they're 40 years old as a church, and he is using the messenger. He's using John under the influence of the Spirit to write this, and he has this message to the church. And this is what he says in verse 1. He says... To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men that you have tested, those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Now, four things that I see that the Lord is sending as a message to this church that says, yeah, this is what I love. 
And I believe these things that he commends them on are charges that we should be reminded of and that we need to continue on to do here at Fellowship. Charge number one is that we are to be a hard-working church. Notice the first phrase in verse 2. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work. The word for work here in the original language means to toil to the point of absolute exhaustion. Now, what we don't know is we don't know all the toiling that took place in the Ephesian church. But I'm going to tell you, I've been in the church work for about 25 years as far as a pastor. (coughs) And I've been involved in the church for 35 years. And I'm going to tell you, it's hard work. I'm going to tell you, church work would be a lot easier if it didn't involve people. Okay, it would be a lot easier. But because we got people, it is a difficult job. Occasionally, I'll have somebody come up to me and say, Oh, pastor, you know, I wish I had a job where I only worked one day a week. (laughs) And I want to give them the right hand of fellowship. Uh, I mean, this is hard work. I know you all appreciate your pastor I, I, your pastor works hard and your elders and your leaders, they work hard because you wouldn't get to this place after 20 years without hard, hard labor. And so for the charge, the charge is to continue to do that. And I'm thankful that God has given you godly leadership. I know Van, Pastor Van is godly. I, I sensed it because I passed his office and there was like this Shekinah glory coming out of it. So I, I know he's a god. It was either that or it was dead carcasses uh, that hanging on the wall, something like that. Anyways. <clears throat> Hard work, charge number one. Charge number two, be a persistent church. He says, I know your deeds and your hard work and your perseverance. The word for perseverance here is given the idea of holding up under an immense trials that they were facing. See, these people were facing difficulties from within and from without. So you say, how do I know that? Well, I know church. I know church. And if you go back to when the church was in its infancy, when Paul was writing Ephesians, he wrote in Ephesians 4 some hints that give us an idea of of what goes on in a church. He says in Ephesians 4, he says, you remember this? Bear with one another in love. See, that's a nice way of saying, would you guys just get along already? You see, isn't the church an amazing thing? I mean, you have 500 people here at Fellowship. That means you got 500 personalities. You got 500 likes and dislikes. You got 500 different backgrounds of how you were raised in different cultures and the mixing it all together. And somehow it's supposed to work. It's an amazing thing. There's internal struggles. Hearing your history and hearing the good, the bad, and the ugly. There was part of that. There is in every church. But he says, persevere. Persevere under that. We know that there was external troubles in the Ephesian church. Because Paul says later in Ephesians 4, there's darkness. The darkness of the Gentile understanding who was wanting to seep into the church. 
And that's how they were, to, they were to battle against these things. So your second charge is you continue to go forward in the next 10, 20, 30, 40, however many years, is to be persistent because it's not going to be easy. There will be more people that get cancer. There will be more people that face incredible difficulties of losing their job. There will be people that you love, that you want to reach out to, that just will reject the gospel. Continue on. Persevere. Because that's what God wants us to do. Number three. This third charge is very significant. It's be doctrinally pure. Be doctrinally pure as a church. Take a look at verse three. He says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men... You have, you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and found them false. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans. I'm jumping down to verse 6. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. See, one of the pressures that was on the leadership of this church, as well as every church throughout history, including Fellowship Bible Church, is this tendency for new ideas that go contrary to God's word to just kind of seep in the pores of the church. There's always that temptation. Now, I don't know much about the Nicolaitans, but what I do know is that they were a sect that were growing in popularity. And when something grows in popularity, it might be a little chic, it might be a little chisel, it might be kind of really, really cool, and all of a sudden people are following after it, and they're not doing it with their minds, they're just doing it with their hearts, they're doing it with their emotions, and all of a sudden they're down a path where they don't want to be. We have that today. We have people that I think are, in a sense, false prophets. Recently, there was a guy named Rob Bell that came out with a book called Love Wins. I don't know if you've heard of it. You probably have already talked about it. But I've got to tell you, Rob Bell, I've met Rob Bell. And Rob Bell is just cool. I mean, he is cool looking, man. He has those, like, really square glasses, okay? He looks like he stepped out of a Hollister magazine. I mean, he's well-dressed, uh, I imagine he wears all the latest perfumes and stuff. And in his promotion of his book, oh my goodness, he used the artistic community. If you went online, you would see an artsy type of video introducing his book. And he also has this popular, very popular theme through his book. You know that everybody eventually goes to heaven? Isn't that a great message? I mean, wouldn't that be a popular thing? Nobody's going to go to hell. I mean, what kind of a loving God would send somebody to hell? He even says in his video, he says, Gandhi is in hell? Really? You really think so? How do you know? And he makes his case that everyone's going to heaven. And you know what? He looks chiseled. He looks cool. He, he, he has a great appearance. But you know what he is? He's a false prophet because what he is delivering is heresy. It goes against the word of God. And so this is why God puts leaders in a church. You know that? The Ephesian church, think about their leadership team. It started off with the Apostle Paul. I mean, I don't know that it gets much better than that, okay? And then he passes it on to Timothy. And then we see the Apostle John, great, godly leadership in this church. But do you know that history tells us that the Ephesian church eventually fizzled out? 
I don't know where it went awry. Here at Fellowship, God's given you some great godly leadership. Continue on in the doctrinal purity that God has called you to. Uphold the word of God as I know you do. Continue to do that. That's the charge. Here's number four. Number four is that we have to be morally upright, a morally upright church in the midst of a dark world and a difficult world. Take a look at verse three again. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. When he talks about you have endured hardship, he's talking about the environment that this Ephesian church was in. And what he is saying is that they've endured it. They've run the long race. They've been in a a pretty wicked environment. See, you need to know something about Ephesus. Ephesus has the temple of Artemis. The competing religion in town is a temple where it is encouraged that if they want the goddess's blessing on their life, that the men in that group needed to consummate a relationship with a temple prostitute. Can you imagine that husband saying to his wife, well, honey, if we want God's blessing, then, well... And you can see the environment of culture of wickedness that was within that city. It was impure. It defiled what God had designed in the intimate relationship between a man and a woman. And what Paul, or what the writer is saying, is what God is saying to this church is that you've not grown weary. I hope, I hope that that's what God would say of Maranatha Bible Church and a fellowship is that you've not grown weary. You've maintained the moral integrity because there's too many pastors, too many leaders that fall to the wayside in that. You know what? Here's the summary. You're working hard. You're persistent. You're doctrinally pure. You're morally pure. I would expect that the next verse that's in the passage to say, I would expect them to say, well, the angels are rejoicing. I mean, there's a heavenly choir because you have been faithful and we are ready to let you know, well done, good and faithful servant. But that's not what it says. Take a look at verse four. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the heights from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. You mean to tell me, you mean to tell me it is possible To be in a ministry where we're working hard for God. Where we are persistent, even though it's difficult. We're holding up under trials. We are doctrinally pure as a church. We're morally pure as a church. You mean to tell me we could do all that activity and not be in love with Jesus? That's exactly what our passage is telling us. See, our fifth charge trumps all charges. The fifth charge, Mark, church, is that we must be a church 
that is desperately in love with Jesus Christ. Desperately. He says, you've fallen away from your first love. Do you remember your first love? My first love's right over here. She fell off her bike, and I stopped to help her in high school. We dated four years. We've been married 25 years. Now, I know some of you are calculating in your mind, how old is this guy? Okay, we got married at 12, okay? (laughs) Your first love is your first passion. You see, the theme that we have in the scriptures, if we really look and we really search and we see the heart of God, we see back in Deuteronomy 6, remember what the command was given to the Jewish nation? If you don't remember anything else, remember this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your might. That's what we're to do. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? The, the, the people that were trying to trick him thought maybe he would uh, you know, pick one of the 600 and some laws that there were. And he says, no, 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 here's the greatest command. Here's the greatest command. The greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That's the greatest. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. But the second can only happen if the first one is in place. And see, I believe this is what the admonition is here in Revelation, that God wants us to return to our first love and to make sure the first thing is first, the greatest priority, the greatest passion, the greatest priority that we can have is being in love with Jesus. Let me illustrate how this is so important in a way that maybe we can all understand. Men, those of you that are married... You go home this afternoon and you look at your beautiful wife straight in the eyes and you say, Honey, I want you to know you are in the top five of all the women I love. (laughs) Let me ask you, how well would that go with you? How many of you would get a shoe upside your head? Okay, I would get a shoe upside my head. Because she's not to be number five. She's not to be four, three, two, one. She is to be one. And she is my passion. She's the one that I want to text throughout the day. She's the one that I want to call, that I want to do a mission trip with. She's the one that I share my frustrations with. She's the one I'm frisky with. I'm telling you, it's okay for a pastor to be frisky with his wife. Okay, I want you to know, it's a good sign. Okay, it's a bad sign if it's with a secretary or somebody else. That's a no. But my wife, yes. I want to be in love with my wife. And after 25 years of marriage, I want to continue to cultivate that. And I want there to be an excitement in my relationship because she's my passion. She's my love. She's my partner here on earth. But just like that, in fact, on a greater level, God cannot be number five in our life. He can't be four, he can't be three, he can't be two. He needs to be one. You know, we do worship an all-consuming fire. We do worship a God who is a jealous God. And he says, I alone need to be worshipped. What has greater priority than God in your life? My friends, the proof is in how you live your life. You know, our lives are like a cup. 
what happens is when we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, what God does is he pours into us. He pours his wisdom. He pours his knowledge. He gives us understanding because we're still enough to love him. Maybe it's in my quiet time. Maybe it's throughout the day, whatever. It's a relationship that is my greatest priority. But let me tell you, it's hard for God to pour into a moving cup. And that's what we do in this world. We get busy, 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 busy. And before we know it, we got a little bit of dust on the Bible and we have to, you know, dust it off. And, and before we know it, God isn't the greatest priority in our life. And so the final charge that I give to the body, I actually give to me first. Steve, am I loving God as my first love? As we go forward, would you internalize that question? Would you make sure that that's happening? My time is up. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are so good. And Lord, what, I, what we realize is that when we love you, we may not be the best strategist. We may not be the best teacher. We may not be the best leader. We may not be the best evangelist. But Lord, when, when we are allowing you to flow in and through us and overflowing in our lives, and we shake out into the world and the people of the world see the love of Christ and they know that we're disciples, they don't care how talented we are. They don't care how good we are at speaking. They care because what they see is the love of Christ in me. And so, Lord, I pray that that would be so true of every single one of us that we would love you with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.